is ContraZoom. Where we go back and forth about film. Now, this is pretty cool. We sort of started off this podcast way back when, earlier this year. And uh, one of our missions was to kind of combine our love of movies, both old and new. And so we decided to start that off by doing a, a pretty, I guess, audacious task of watching every single Academy Award winning Best Picture film. Uh, the Academy Awards have been around for, oh, I'm blanking. How many years is it now? Is it 70, 80, 80, 85, 86, something? 80, around that. Something like that. So quite a while. Um, and we decided the best way to kind of do it is chop it up into 10-year chunks because, one, 10 is a great even number to deal with things. And two, you sort of... It's a lot easier to compare a film made within a 10-year span than it is to say, you know, uh, how, how do you compare things like um, The Artist and, uh, well, I guess that's the best example because it's a silent movie, um, Birdman with something that came out 50, 60 70 years ago. It's a little difficult to really say because, you know, uh, not only do, do acting styles change, but the very format itself, the the filming, we've gone through celluloid to now digital and things like that. So the very the very nature of film has changed quite a bit. So it's not very fair to straight up compare Wings, the very first winner, to Birdman, last year's winner. So I I really like this concept for sort of a a verbal thesis. Uh, we're now about to do our our second episode going um oh wow i should probably i should probably have this up in front of me the years of when they came out um do you do you happen to know this or or am i just going to be rambling like a fool here (laughs) you can ramble if you wish (laughs) it's okay i'm bringing up wikipedia now okay so now we're on the second the second episode where we're dealing with uh from 1938 uh all the way up to 1947, so you know we're uh, we're we're kind of right in the thick of World War II era films. So if that helps set the the background for anything, I guess that's something to kind of go in knowing. Um, we we completely done watched the first 20 years. How are you feeling about this project so far? I'm feeling really good. I like the fact that we're getting these. 10 film bite-sized chunks because as you said we can evaluate what's happening historically within these eras and how it affects the films we have a lot of war-based films here whether it's directly affected by the war or just thematically being affected by humanity's love or hatred towards one another and i also noticed i don't know if you noticed this but there are a lot of very similar speech patterns, uh, characteristics, personalities, and the like. Like, I think eight out of ten of the films, everybody used to, or everybody greeted each other with, how do you do? How do you do? I, did you notice that as well? Uh, and I, I don't think I made a mental note of it, but I, I can sort of see what you're getting at. Yeah, and it's nice because we've been transported back in back in time 
parts, and we we can evaluate these films within their own context. Whereas it's easy to take something like Casablanca, or I guess to reiterate back to our our last episode's winner, it happened in one night. To look back at it and say, "Oh, this is ahead of its time," but why don't we look at things within their time? So that's why I like doing these in order and within 10 10 year chunks since we weren't graced with the film starting at 1930 i'm okay with that though because we get a little bit of the previous era and the and the era afterwards just so we're not making a a big gargantuan jump so i'm enjoying it very well it's as entertaining as it is educational it's broadening my sense of what i perceive to be thematically brilliant or disappointing even which i'm always for i never like to kind of feel like i've reached my zenith which i don't think anybody can with with an art form like this it's been a great experiment and we barely even scratch the surface i I think what's sort of interesting is is for me on a personal note when you're talking about the best picture winners okay you know there there's a handful that stick out that you go yeah that actually deserved it you know whether it's the the stuff that was coming in the the late 60s early 70s sort of the american cinema revolution to some of the more recent winners like uh hurt locker what have you outside of that you you I don't I don't know if it's just the public perception, but it seems to be, oh yeah, best picture winners, who cares about that? They don't get it right anyways. And a lot of times they don't, they, whether or not it's because something that has either aged better or has grown in statue over the years, which we'll get into with the first film, um, one that lost. But as a whole, I, I'm I'm actually kind of really disagreeing with that. You know, we're we're 20 films in this decade especially. Of the 10, there was only two I didn't really care for. The other eight, it was actually really difficult to kind of uh, rate and rank them. Um, Are you finding sort of a a similar sort of uh, surprise about how maybe what your perception was going into it and how they are now? Yeah, it's interesting because we've, we've, we've witnessed our hiccups like Cimarron, for instance, and... To be frank, I was expecting a lot more stuff like that, where I would look at this and say, oh, that's dated. That is, that is where the public eye and the old perception of what film is was like back then. I, oh, we are so far advanced. But no, I, I'm completely wrong. It's just as it is now. We have some winners that deserve to win. We have some winners that didn't deserve to win. And I mean... To go back to the last episode, I mean, we had um, Mutiny on the Bounty, you know, we had All Quiet on the Western Front, even Wings. Wings was absolutely mind-blowing with some of the stuff that it pulled off, and that was the very first winner. And you're absolutely right, because I thought this was going to be a lot further of a, like, a lot bigger of a stretch of how relatable we could find these films but no not really and it's really changed my perception of what some of these winners really were like back then and even now like if you look at the ones that possibly didn't deserve to win more recently which we'll get to whenever we get to them um it's it's been really interesting i i think the takeaway thing is good movies will stay good and we're witnessing a case of, for the most part, 
these are some really good to great films that were made. And speaking of great films, we didn't get to it in the first episode, but it was something that I, I had in my mind that I was planning to do anyways. But we figured we want to sort of get all the, the nitty gritty out of the way and sort of dive into ContraZoom before, you know, having anything external happening. Uh, so this is a great time to debut our newest feature where in each of these Oscar episodes, uh, I'm going to uh, I'm going to interview uh, some members from our Live in Limbo team, some of our uh, brothers and sisters in typing. Um about what their favorite movies are, just because for the most part, we're really used to hearing about people's taste in music and, and seeing that sort of thing. And our film section is, for the most part, uh, relegated to uh, to your movie reviews and my uh, Oscar primers, for the most part. Uh, so we thought, you know, what better way to start it off with the head honcho himself, Mr. Sean Chin, who... I, I talked to him a little bit about what his three favorite movies are. So that way we're mixing the the academic side where you and I are talking about the best picture winners with the more personal side of film. Because I think that's one thing that can easily get overlooked in film criticism is the the personal aspect of it. Your your personal favorite movies could probably completely differ from movies that you either realize are important or uh or, or could see the cultural significance to them as far as pieces of art goes. So without further ado, uh, let's hear what Sean has to say about his favorite movies. And for a brand new segment, we're deciding to ask some of the people that contribute to Live in Limbo about what their favorite movies are and what those movies mean to them. So I figured there's no better way to start it off with our first segment with the owner and editor-in-chief, Mr. Sean Chin. How are you doing today, Sean? I'm good, Dakota. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, let's talk about some movies. Normally, you're the one that's sort of in charge of these podcasts, and now the tables have turned, and uh -oh. I'm here to ask you questions. All right. Bring it on. I am sweating. Uh, do you watch a lot of movies in your free time, or are you sort of like, a, it's a special occasion only? I actually only watch movies like in the theater, Yeah, and, that not, was and not too much like on TV. Or that was actually going to be my next question no. about like when you watch movies, what is your predominant way of doing it? Do you like going to the theater or is it, you know, uh, I guess if friends are going, I'll go sort of thing. That too. Like I'll only tend to watch new films in the theater and not really like anywhere else. Unless it's like a really one of those cheesy reruns on TV. Like one of those. um, Yeah. Like, uh, you know, those cheesy ones that they always play like sharknado or whatever <laughs> uh for me it was every time gone in 60 seconds was on tbs i'd usually you know watch at least an hour of that and they have uh up. they have lava anchula lava lanchula coming out yeah is that gonna be one that you'll try to catch when uh, you got nothing else going on <laughs> tarantulas made out of lava that's pretty cool now was there ever a time when when you were growing up that you know, movies stop being purely uh, 
entertainment that's that's you know uh, your parents used to kind of shut you up for a little for a few hours to give them some peace of quiet and actually be something that you you sought out regardless of you know whether it's for entertainment for um for intelligent discourse how be it was there was there an age where you feel that happened to you oh okay that's a good one okay i i think that actually that moment came during um i, th- I went to a catholic school and uh, elementary school and i think I mean, hold on. No, no, it was probably high school, like grade nine in a religious class. And that movie, what's that one with Jim Carrey? And um, he's like in the fake world. Oh, the Truman Show. Yes. After that movie, then I started seeking out all these philosophical types of uh, films. Was that the first time that you realized that movies, movies were this, more just than two hour thing? Yes, were, were more than just... Uh, like entertainment, Disney stuff. There was like actual meaning behind stuff. I think that was the first one. I gotta say that's a that's a pretty good movie to kind of start out with. And, and, and then right after with. that, we were watching um, what's it called uh, Lord of the Flies. Oh, so those two kind of kicked it off. That's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> you know, I guess the the whole point of this is. Um, we want to know about what kind of movies sort of shaped you. So I, I want to ask you, what are your three favorite movies? And the answer to this could be however you want it to be. It could be your three favorite based on, you know, rewatchability. It could be on the ones that made the most profound impact on your life. It could be just the movies that you uh, find the funniest or most entertaining mm-hmm. or or the best made. So yeah. Tell me, what is your answer for your three best movies? So start with number one. Okay. No order, I guess. In, what, no order? No particular order. Oh, well, I can give you an order. Okay, give me an order. What's Okay, so number, okay I'm, I'm just going to start off by saying, while I do watch movies frequently, like new releases, it's very hard. F- I don't know why, but it's very difficult for a modern film to break into this list for some reason. I'm not sure why exactly, but I've had a list from like 2012, my top 10 and nothing's been able to like penetrate anywhere onto that ranking. I don't know why. That's fair. No, that's understandable. Okay. It, it's been a while since I uh, had a movie that had that much of an impact on me too. Yeah. I guess that, yeah, that word impact. Yes. Yes. Okay. So number one is Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. Okay. When was the first time that you watched that movie? Was oh. it when it was a new release or did you see it after the fact? Because that came out in 1998. So I guess probably a little bit later. Yeah. Uh, after the initial release. Yes, for sure. I think that came out in 94. Oh yeah, you're right. Sorry. That yes. was 98. Thank you. Uh, missing my years up already. <laughs> um, now, what was it about that movie that sort of draw you to it? Because I know let's just put it out there. There's going to be spoilers if we're going to be talking about this, these movies. Um, was it the first time that was that sort of, I, I, I don't okay, want to so say gotcha moment, but what was it about it? I think mainly this sounds weird, but like, I like this, this movie meant a lot because I like this book called, um, the count of Monte Cristo. Have you heard of that book by Alexander dumbass? Like, maybe. It's a joke from the movie oh, because yeah. one of the inmates says Alexander Dumas yes. and he goes, no, it's Dumas. Dumas. Yes, Dumas. But you know that book, right? Yes, of so course. It's, it it's kind of similar, kind of. But anyway, I, 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 li- I love this film for the cinematography, but not only the cine- cinematography, but like the story of kind of like 
you've been wronged for no reason and you kind of twist it around and come out on top at the end. I think this movie is like, there's many movies like that, but this one, I don't know, it does it the best. Is that sort of like your fantasy of if if things ever go wrong, you know, you could look to that as an inspiration and be like, no, I know how to fight the system. Yeah, pretty much. That's a pretty good one, though. And, you know, um, who do you think is better? Do you think Tim Robbins or Morgan Freeman? Which which side do you go to more? Morgan Freeman. Yeah? Yeah. Red cool. is pretty good. He's cool. All right, moving on. What do you have as number two? Okay, and for some reason, that's the only film that's, like, worldly. All my other films are otherworldly. No, that, that's okay. Like, whatever whatever favorite films mean to you, that's the answer that I want. Okay, number two is 2001 A Space Odyssey. I saw this when it was first released. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm joking. You're but not I, that old. <laughs> I was going to say I went into a time machine and went back. But I love this movie because... I When did I see this one? Okay, this one's not in a theater or on TV. I just remember hearing about... Um, this from some of my philosophy teachers in university. So actually, this is probably, it could be the most recent one that I liked that made it onto my list that it's the, and it's the oldest. So in like, which So you like? saw this the most recent out of these. When I, and when I say films. recent, it's like 2006 recent. Okay. <laughs> Probably in like the first year of university or something like that. So my philosophy teacher was talking about it. So then I downloaded, oh, uh, I, I acquired it <laughs> and I watched it on my laptop between classes. And yeah, that was a big gap, like a four hour gap. And I watched it there and my mind was blown. And then I watched it again the following week on my TV. Now, I guess I have a bit of a confession to make. If you want to uh, take away my uh, cinephile card, I'd, I'd be okay with that. I have not seen 2001. I've seen bits and pieces of it, what? but I've never sat down and seen it all. What, because you got bored of it? No, not even because of that. That's been on my must-see list for a very long time. I just have never gotten around to it. Sometimes they have it at TIFF in like the, the full full format, whatever the special format is. And I definitely should go and do that. Yeah, next time that comes why. out, we should go. I'll, I'd definitely be down for that. Uh, I know Andreas is a, a huge fan of it as well. It's like, it's not even, I don't even think it's like a film. I don't even consider it a film. It's just like an experience. That's like one of the only films that's like an experience that you have to go through. Now, what are your thoughts on like the, the final 20 minutes LSD sequence? Wait, so you've seen it or you have not seen that part? I've seen bits of it. I, like I you am, won't be able to I'm relate to what I say. That's okay. I want, I want you to, de de to describe it. That, that part is just like that. When I first saw that part, I was like, what's going on here? This must be really messed up. But then when you think about it, the first time I watched it, I'm like, I didn't like it. The first time, the very first time. Like I got why people were like whispering about it and like saying, oh, it's really cool. But the first time I didn't get it and you'll probably be like that too. But then you watch it a second and a third time and then you read about the Wikipedia and like the storyline and the plot and you go on IMDb and the forums and you go through all the conspiracy theories and all the all the plots and like all the twists and turns that could go behind and like the subliminal messages behind it and you're like, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's very it deep. Cool. There's like YouTube videos doing analysis on it. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Uh, are you a fan of other Kubrick works or is that just really like the, the only Shining one that's too, you? The Shining, yeah? but that's not on my list. But also like, have you seen The Shining? I have not, no. I'm not a big horror fan. Well, I, I don't really consider that a horror film, but but I guess so. <laughs> but also this in the same way, like it's deep, like people in forums go like this scene shows that it relates to this equals we did not land on the moon. Have you uh, have you seen that documentary that they made about The Shining? Yeah. You've seen it? So there's like a documentary that's just as long as the actual film itself. And it's about like the conspiracy theories behind yes. it. It's sort of funny. I feel like everything that I know about Kubrick, he's a very intelligent person. And it seems like for the most part, you know, he's making these films just because, you know, that's the vision he has in his head. But it's... I can't remember what the exact saying is, but once an artist makes a work, they can no longer work tell you what it's about. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the people that are viewing it and seeing it decide what the final meaning and message behind. So I think something like The Shining was probably a fairly straight up thriller, horror, psychology sort of thing film to make for him. But, you know, afterwards, it's kind of taken a life on its own that's bigger than the project ever was. I forgot another great point is I forgot what the exact like specification of like the millimeter, like the millimeter of the the tape that he used. But you know how like we have HD, which is 1080p and then there's like 2K and then 4K um, Ultra mm -hmm. HD. So yep. like he filmed 2001 in 1968 and you could run it on a 4K screen and it would be perfect. Like, how did, how did he know that that's where it was going to go? He is he is widely considered of being one of the best photographers ever. So but he, he probably, filmed a 4K movie in 1968. I think it might be actually even 8K. I have to, yeah. I have to look up the specs. There, there's nothing like celluloid film, though. When, when, it's done, when it's done right, it's the most beautiful thing in the world. Not even done right. It's like, how did he even think that far ahead? He's a mastermind. But I guess moving on, what is your, your third favorite movie? Okay, number three is Artificial Intelligence from 2001. Ah, good old Steven Spielberg. You seem to have a bit of a theme here of yeah, uh, sci-fi. The rest will all be sci-fi. Yeah. Uh, what about, what, what, draw, what drew you to that? Because I know some people have some complaints about it being a little too long and the final sequence sort of uh, drags on a bit. It's been a while since I've seen it. But what, what, what about it drew you into it you know it's, it's it is pretty much that pinocchio story right so mm -hmm. it's like this it, i guess it is kind of a long movie but i like long movies because if it's a good movie then it warrants being long i i don't think this would be a great two-hour movie this needs emotional build-up and character development for sure but just just seeing this little boy and his companion bear it's like no matter how hard he tries as a robot, like no matter how hard and over time and the wishing and as human as he possibly can, he just cannot become a human. Isn't that like the most sad story ever? It is. Do you cry when you watch it? I cry at the point. I think it, it's the end. So I don't know what you were talking about where people were saying the last 20 minutes dragged on. 
but isn't the end part where he's like under under the water and then he's yeah and then he finds the ferry and then just freezes over yeah how's that the people were complaining about that part <sighs> i'm not too sure it's been a while since i've read about it i know some that's think the part where i want to cry yeah it's like it's a pretty depressing moment when you know he's stuck there forever and ever and ever and then they wake the aliens wake him up after like thousands and thousands of years and guess what he's the closest thing to a human i think maybe that's what people have the problem with is that they wish it just ended before the aliens came Mm, no i don't i don't think so because that that was his wish to become a human and the only way he could be the like the like he was really really close to being a human before the the ice age thing but the only way he could be like that extra millimeter on that borderline of human is if all the other humans died. And he was the last person that aliens could ask to recall human history. That's when he becomes human. I I like the film. It's been a very long time since I've seen it. I want to um, cry now. Uh, but I think you might find this interesting if you didn't already know but Stanley Kubrick was originally uh, attached to direct it and then he passed away and uh, cry more and uh, Steven Spielberg took over it and sort of spent like the whole time trying to recreate it as Stanley Kubrick would have wow I did not know that wait so when did he die Kubrick died I think in was it 98 I want to say yeah, this would have been a great Kubrick film. Damn, I did not know that. You just blew my mind again. Good job. Thank you. I'm <laughs> I'm actually looking up to see when he died. In '99, he died. Oh, so I guess he maybe he even did actually start directing, probably. Or like uh, AI the very came pre- out in preliminary. 2001. Yeah. So I think he had started working on. Dude, that would have been insane if he made that in 2001. Yeah. Another sci-fi movie? That'd be pretty interesting. No, no, like, you know how he made 2001 Space Odyssey? And if he made artificial intelligence in 2001? Yeah. Whoa. He was a very ahead-of-his-time director, that's for sure. Yes, absolutely. Well, I just want to thank you very much for sharing those movies with us. Uh, To listeners, if you haven't seen any of them, especially 2001 like me, you should probably go out and see it. Um, And we'll link to those three in the show notes. So thank you very much uh, for your time today, Sean. Thank you. Do you want to hear the rest of the 10 though? I'll go through them really quickly. Okay, you can go through them quickly. (laughs) Number four is Blade Runner. Great. Number five is Alien. Number six is this film I really, really like, Contact. Oh yeah. Jodie Foster. I love that film. Number seven is The Village. Okay. Number eight is Sunshine. Sunshine almost kind of made me cry. Which too. one? Which one's that? The two thousand seven one. Yeah. What's the, the one where they have to restart the sun. Oh, okay. Yes. Number nine is the Time Machine. The the latest one, two thousand two. And number ten is Lady in the Water. Okay. You you really have an affinity for sort of science fiction fantasy. Yes. People always make fun of me for Lady in the Water for some reason. Uh, I haven't seen it. I'm not the biggest fan of uh, M. Night, M. Night. Sham- M. Night Shyamalan. Um, I really love um, oh, the uh, Unbroken. Oh, Unbroken. No, Unbroken. I love that movie. Cool. I like that too. I like all of his movies. He's supposed to make a new one too. 
Yeah. Oh, every, every everything except Avatar. That one sucked ass. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that movie doesn't exist according to fans on the internet. That's like the worst movie ever made. <laughs> Even I did not understand it. <laughs> well, once again, thank you very much for your time, Sean. I will not be linking to all 10, but, you know, if you want to know more about Sean and who he is as a person, I suggest you you check out a few of those. So thank you very much. Thank you, Dakota. All right. Now, it's kind of funny because you and I were talking offline before I did this interview and you sort of prepped me about what you thought his answers were going to be. And you were actually pretty close. Well, I remember when I first joined Live in Limbo and Sean wanted me on board because of my my movie reviewing before I did any concert related stuff, any music related stuff, capsule, contra zoom, interviewing, anything. He wanted to have a discussion and he said, look, we need somebody who does films on the site. Here are some of my favorite movies. And uh, he showed me a list of his favorites. And it's pretty much what we just heard. Because Sean's a photographer at heart, you're going to see a lot of these movies that are or cinematographically... Did I butcher that word? <laughs> Most likely. Um, they're photographically beautiful, let's say. And the cinematography is exquisite i mean you have 2001 for instance you have artificial inte- artificial intelligence which is steven spielberg's tribute to kubrick so you know you're going to get pretty much the same deal there and sean chin is also highly into science fiction and you know you've got these very interpretational films which you know some people could see that as oh these movies don't tell us anything i don't like that or I guess people like Sean Chin would look at this and say, I have my own interpretation. I have my own reason for this film's existence. And it's probably quite a blessing to have a film that can do that for you. You know, I didn't even think about that, that the reason why maybe he probably doesn't even realize it, that maybe the reason why he's drawn to something like 2001 and AI is because of how well it's shot and, and, I think if you are familiar with Sean's work as a photographer, you can definitely see a bit of overlap, especially the way he he shoots with light. He has a, he definitely has a very unique stylistic choice of of shooting with light. Exactly, and you know now that we know what what these films are, like they are just so Sean Chin. Nothing really came out of left field, but they're, they're all. They all range from pretty good to some excellent filmmaking. I mean, 2001 is is a downright classic. So I think we got some winners here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. I guess let's uh, let's get into uh, the bulk of the episode, uh, which is counting down the movies, uh, the, the best picture winners going from 1938 to 1947. Um, what we'll be doing is going in reverse order. So our what we consider the worst, whether however you want to take that to the best of that decade, that, that span of 10 years. So coming in at number 10 was how green was my Valley directed by, uh, the very famous, uh, and well-known director, John Ford, who's mostly known for his Westerns, who sort of switches it up and, uh, does a period piece, 
about a Welsh mining town, and it's sort of it's sort of halfway between being a family drama uh, centered around a young boy and the unionization of a coal miner uh, of a coal mine um, with the the patriarch and this young boy's older brothers sort of being the central figures in uh, opposing ideology. Um, what was it for you that really made it? end up so low on your totem pole well i think the fact that you giving the synopsis made more sense than the film did is already a bad sign um (laughs) don't get me wrong i love the director as well and just knowing that he's done films like grapes of wrath the searchers even stagecoach and he's done more than that i mean i can't even begin to go through his resume and to know that this is one of the films of his that ended up winning for Best Picture, so this is a film that a lot of people will go to when they look him up initially. It's not the worst thing I've ever seen, but it doesn't do his work justice. And my all-time favorite director, bar none, no competition, is Igmar Bergman. And he is, called, he is considered for a great influence of his for the longest time. And even in a movie like this, How Green Was My Valley, the shots are so gorgeous and they're so poetically loaded with just so much meaning. But that's about it for me. I mean, the ordering of everything was a little bit troublesome. It's conflicted messaging was more of a head scratcher than it was a deep thinking process. It just ended up being a bit of a bit of a lesson and a task as opposed to this beautiful tapestry of which it tried to be i don't know what do you think there's a whole host of things that i did not like about it there's basically nothing i thought that it did well other than sure some of the cinematography was really solid uh i think Another problem, you know, for the most part, we 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 are watching these as standalone films and trying to avoid all the outside noise. But how green was my valley? Unfortunately, carries uh, even more tarnish to its name because the year that it won for best picture, it beat out arguably the greatest film of all time in Citizen Kane. And also, even if Citizen Kane, you know, at the time was derided and not enjoyed as much. Uh, even if we go, okay, fine. Citizen Kane wasn't going to win anyways. That's a movie that aged better. It also beat out the Maltese Falcon, one of the finest um, noirs, and uh, Sergeant York, a great war film, Suspicion, uh, Alfred Hitchcock movie, and a few other smaller movies that I'm not familiar with. But still, the fact that it beat out Citizen Kane and Maltese Falcon is pretty damning in itself. The fact that you know, it's always going to sort of be known as the film that beat out Citizen Kane. Yeah, and it's unfortunate because in this case, it wasn't an ordinary people that beat Raging Bull, where I watched it and I said, okay, I get why this won. I don't know if it deserved to, but ordinary people had me basically on the gr- on the ground crying in a curled ball. So I said, okay, you know what? It at least got me there, even though I don't think it deserved to win. I could see something pretty about how green is my valley, but just so much of it was just so confusing. And I don't mean that I didn't get what it was about. I did, but I don't know if it had a clear purpose either. And the fact that this beat something as so in its own universe, like Citizen Kane, 
are so literally driven like Maltese Falcon, as you said, and just so many other movies that have such clear distinctions. I don't know. I, and it's not like we're the majority decision here. I mean, a lot of people still love this movie. So fortunately for this podcast, so we could go back and forth, we, we agree on this, but it's still a pretty well-praised film. And I might be missing something. I don't know. I don't know. As far as I go, like I've got a lit litany of reasons of why it doesn't work. I think chief among them is that, you know, John Ford is a great director, but this movie had no direction. I don't know if this was an issue of the script or an issue of the director, but you know, in, in the summary, I was saying that it was, uh, part, um, coal mine worker issue sort of dealing with uh, trying to decide if they should unionize or not in part family drama. The issue is neither of them works. You spend, you know, quite a large chunk of the film, you know, talking about the union, showing the union stuff, showing these brothers trying to convince their, you know, father that unions are good and socialism and things like this. And the father is basically, you know, laughing them off and saying that they can't say those things while they live under his roof. And quite a few of the brothers move out and things like that. So you, you, you get invested with this whole union issue of working in a small town. And then on, then like, 15 20 minutes later it switches over to the family drama stuff and it completely drops any semblance of continuing a thread and it does this non-stop back and forth between the family stuff and the coal mine stuff and the whole time you don't care about any of it so when they go back to the other side you're just like oh i guess we're back to this now okay oh i'm supposed to care where we left off and realize that they completely dropped all plot points for about 15 20 minutes to show this idiotic kid played by uh, a very very young um roddy mcdowell mm-hmm. so i, I like it, it bugged me about that because you just don't care about any of it. And the older brothers, there's what, five or six of them. None of them are indistinguishable. You could basically cast them as one person and you would not have noticed a difference. Did, did you find that? A little bit. Just a little bit of it felt like there was effort, but not enough for, again, for distinction. And I agree with on that point. And I also agree with, the whole dropping the story bit. And, you know, the one part that I did like was the very ending, which is, it, it was actually a bit emotional, but by the time they had this metaphor that was kind of shoved in there at the ending with this beautiful shot in the coal mine, which I won't spoil for whoever does want to see this, despite our, our criticisms. Um, at that point I said, Oh, Okay. I, I get what it's about now, but I don't fully get how it pertains to everything we just saw, nor do I want to rewatch this and piece everything together. So I felt like there was a little bit of effort, but not enough to actually get things going when it came, when it came to casting, when it came to the, the supposed plot points and the, the order of which everything was, was displayed. The only thing I saw that had a lot of fine, delicate care with was was the visuals. That's it. Everything else I just felt like was kind of just tossed in there. Oh, uh, you you look like you could be the part here, you go in there. Um, oh hey, this is this is a pretty cool metaphor. Let's let's toss that in. I don't know. I, I think we're both incredibly cynical about this, but at least we agree. 
it, it yeah, it was, it was pretty terrible. I the, the little boy's name is Hugh, spelled H U W. The basically the only thing about this movie that's Welsh is the fact that they have Welsh names. The rest of it, their accents, none of it really screams, you know, life in Wales, which I think would have been far more of an interesting film. But it seems like all the characters were basic, as far as the family stuff goes, just mouthpieces to further Hugh's plot lines. Um, there, yeah. no one had a real uh, motivations, you know. You know, outside of, I, I'm talking strictly on the family drama side. As far as for the working stuff, they they had their own motivations. But soon as it crossed over to the family drama side, you know, all all motivations were completely dropped. Agreed. Well, it's unfortunate that it's this movie that beat some classics as well as the one that's considered the greatest film of all time. It's unfortunate that a lot of people still love this movie and we didn't, but that's just kind of how it goes. Now, on the topic of motivations, let's hop on over to our number nine pick, which I think we could both agree had its own loaded motivations. It's the comedy drama partial musical Going My Way directed by Leo McCary. This is a possible vehicle for the acclaimed singer Bing Crosby, where he plays a pastor that enters a new area. He's seen as a bit of an unorthodox, yet orthodox preacher. He fits in, but he doesn't. But at the end of the day, he makes it all turn around through his charm, his heart instead of his wit, and just the fact that he's a lovable guy. That's pretty much it. I mean... I didn't dislike it as much as you did. I found a lot of heart within this film, even though there isn't a hell of a lot going on with it. But I will say this. It wasn't even close to the worst film I've seen for this podcast so far, and it won't be, not by a long shot, because we have some real stinkers coming up later on in the, in the years. However, I will say this. Out of all the films I've watched so far, even ones worse than this, this is the first film where I actually don't get what the reason for it winning was, even though I think it's a better film. Nothing stuck out about it where I said that was the defining moment. You know, even in Simran, I could blame that rush sequence and say, okay, that was pretty well directed and everything else was crap. With Going My Way, I don't get what made this stand out enough to be an Oscar winner. But, you know, for me, it was a harmless, happy-go-lucky innocent kind of movie but i think you you feel a very different way though i i don't plan to do this for everyone because i do want to look at them as individuals but like you and i both love noir this beat double indemnity well i think because films are getting old enough and so were the oscars at this point they were both getting old enough that the winners were getting more defined and a lot more realized that, you know, when we see things that were being beaten out by other by other films, you know, this won't be happening later on. But I think for this era, it's it, it's kind of inevitable. So that's okay. I mean, Double Indemnity is is a genius film. So that I can imagine being an Oscar winner. Yeah, um, you know, this was. This was the hardest film I've ever watched to actually take notes about. Normally, I, I have a little notebook, and it's you know it's probably you know eight eight inches long, sort of thing, just your typical tiny little notepad sort of thing. And I usually fill up about one and a half to two and a half pages per movie. This one, I barely got half a page done, and 
all my notes are, are, are basically question marks. Like what it basically boils down to is it was a vehicle to put the most popular singer, Mr. Bing Crosby in to showcase his charm and his singing abilities. Um, outside of that, there really isn't anything. And, and while his singing technically was fine, it wasn't anything inspiring or, you know, jaw-dropping show-off, at least, you know, with um, the crappy Elvis Presley movies, his performances are the absolute highlights of them. Yeah, and we're going to see a bunch of musicals as we keep this this project going. I mean, we have West Side Story. We have My Fair Lady. My Fair Lady is a great example because a lot of that is based on speech. So it's a clever take on the human voice through song. And even though it's not an Oscar winner, you know, Singing in the Rain is, is, kind, of this, is kind of a similar concept where it talks about the death of the silent film age. Now, with Going My Way, it, it's kind of just about a choir. And that it barely is because that only happens later on. I mean, most of the film isn't even a musical for the first good chunk of it. Yeah, it, it would sort of be a bit of a disservice to call it a musical. It's not really. It's uh, it's a comedy drama that has several musical uh, scenes, and it's not in your typical musical fashion where people are just bringing out, breaking out into song and dance. It's very clearly being like, "This is choir practice. We're going to sing a song now." Um, so, so I, I, I really went considered a musical in that sense it's it just happens to be a song that features quite a bit of music yeah and i as you said there's not much to say about this movie because there, there just isn't but it's just it's worth noting that out of the 20 we've seen so far never mind just the 10 um we've had some winners where it's like grand hotel only one best picture one nothing else you know so we have a lot of films that kind of just one, one or two here and there, but going my way ended up winning seven. It's one of the most winningest films we've had to cover so far. It's I, absolutely shocking. <laughs> a little bit, um, and I I don't even hate the film. I thought it was okay. Like it was innocently, partially bland. But even I'm really perplexed as to why this movie just broke so much ground. It, it didn't even come out during like the turn of the Oscars. This is over 10 years into this kind of ceremony. So I'm, I, I don't get where the huge amount of love for it is coming from, but I don't know. Maybe again, I'm cynical. <laughs> this, this is about actually 15 years into the Oscars that it came out, it came out in 1944. Uh, and, and it is just so inoffensively bland that there is just nothing interesting about it. It's not a bad movie. There's just nothing exciting. There's there's nothing really that you can, you know, get behind. There is no um, grand overarching plot to it. Like, it's really not much happens. You know, this young priest comes to town. This old cranky priest doesn't want to sort of deal with the change. But, you know, the crankiness is more there for comedic effect and, and not much else really happens. You know, he's got this group of ruffians who are probably the worst child actors I've ever seen as far as being over the top and, and ridiculous. And he like converts them into being good, good kids, good, good Catholic boys. 
uh, get them to stop stealing and fighting and all those juvenile delinquent things that they do. And it's like, you know, sing one song and you're cured and you never want to roughhouse again sort of thing, which is hilariously bad. <laughs> yeah, and this is around the time when we started to see a lot of really serious subject matter, even in Oscar-winning movies. I mean, we're going to get to some later on, but I, I mean, it's... You're right. I never even thought about that. It's it's borderline offensive to think that you have so much control and power with just the magic of song. This is what a pitch can do to one soul and their hearts. I don't know. I There's a lot wrong with this movie, but I think the one disagreement we'll both have is I thought Bing Crosby was at least maybe not an Oscar winner worthy of that of that recognition anyways i thought he was at least charming <sighs> i don't know i i guess so um i i'm i'm going to give a partial agreement to what you're saying it's just the blandness offended me that it, it was like it was white it was white bread in a glass of water sort of movie that that's how interesting it was at least with how green was my valley as much as i hated it at least it tried to say something and tried to do something um the only reason why it ended up being so far low for me is that the things that it tried to do failed spectacularly yeah i have to agree and again even though it's not our lowest rated film and it won't be i just i don't get what stuck out so far for this kind of movie to win i mean i love the movie Drive, let's say. That was my favorite film of the year that it came out. By far, nothing came close. I don't even expect that to win because there's nothing that makes it an Oscar-worthy film except for, you know, part of maybe the performances and the shots. But apart from that, it's not something I would expect in, in late years. Neither is this. There's, I don't... It's an inoffensive movie to me, but I don't get why it had so much pull to win so many awards. Maybe people just loved Bing Crosby the way People, unfortunately, love the Kardashians now. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I guess we should move on. Coming in at uh, number seven is Miss Miniver, which came out in 1942. And it's... Um, this one's a little bit hard to explain. It's about a, a British family. Uh, you know, they're sort of, you know, uh, middle upper middle class, I guess you would call them. Uh and they've got a couple, they've got, they got a young family, but the, the parents are sort of middle-aged and World War II is just breaking out and England is just getting involved in the war. This was directed by William Wyler, who's, uh, who's very well known for sort of being a bit of a shapeshifter as far as tackling different genres of films. And he made this film, um, at the beginning of the war because it was looking more and more likely that the U.S. was going to get involved. It was sort of a bit of a cautionary tale to be like, hey, yeah, I know you think you did great in World War One, and then everyone came back and it was good, but this is, a, this is a different war and you sort of need to be prepared for the casualties and not just the people that die. Yeah, I might have liked this film more than you did because I thought... I've said this to you before off-air. We've already seen a lot of films, which this is probably a kind of 
common blueprint that happened back then. We've seen a lot of films that have families or people that just experience things either through multiple generations or through just a time lapse. And it's not a specific storyline. It's just things happening within a context. And while Mrs. Minifer follows the same guideline, I thought it did a pretty interesting job, especially with how Greer Garson, who I think spectacularly acted as, as uh, Mrs. Minifer herself, um, how she reacts to all of these scenarios. Some of them are romantic. Some of them are jarring and, and scary. And a lot of it was, as you said, uh, a statement on the war and the war that happened before it. Here's how it unites people to stay strong together. Here's how it tears people apart because it's still devastating and you can't romanticize it. There's quite a bit of context here, actually. I thought it was quite quite a stunning film. And we're going to visit William Wyler films, not even just in this podcast, but in future podcasts uh, later on. But, um, yeah, no, I, I thought it was quite a solid film, far from the best that we've seen for this episode alone. But, no, it was good. I, I, I really enjoyed it. And, you know, I think the fact that it's in seventh place um, does a bit of a disservice because the 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 difference between first and seventh is pretty small that, you know, I, I can't say that I can put them in a position because I think the top two are definitely the top two for a reason. But they all had some really great things going for them. So saying this was in seventh, you know, the third worst is not true at all. This just happened to be a very crowded field and Miss Miniver happened to be a bit of the victim to, to fall down this low. The difference between Miss Miniver and the other two that we just already profile is, is quite, is quite large. So, you know, it's almost like, you know, one through seven, skip 50 spots, then nine and 10, um, that said, I thought, you know, Miss Miniver had some really interesting things going on. Um, my favorite was probably Teresa Wright, who plays, uh, this, this neighbor girl who ends up, uh, dating, um, the family's son. And I thought she was just absolutely fantastic. You know, you get introduced to her, um, when she's uh she ends up putting uh vin the son uh in his place uh where he is like this faux activist he's just come back from a semester of college at oxford and he already thinks he knows how to change the world and you know down with capitalism sort of thing and she like puts him in place and be like well what do you actually do you know you're talking a big game but what do you actually do you know two weeks every year i go and volunteer in um the poor side of town what do you do and he kind of you know gets shut up and that's sort of their their opening flirtation where it's a bit combative and i thought that was a really interesting way to kind of start off their relationship yeah, because from there on in, you see the son end up having a sense of humility because he just comes back as this scholarly academic and he has such precision with the way he speaks until this person of whom he's due to marry ends up, as you said, completely shutting him down. And from there on in, you get a sense of humility within the film. Back in an era where you have, as we previously discussed with some of the other, with the other two films we just witnessed, this over-the-top, over-dramaticism. And 
Mrs. Minifer does a lot of things to shut out that kind of sensibility that we're not going to make this a, a spectacle. This is what war is like. This is what it's like to be with your family and with your loved ones during a time like this. So it had that kind of notion where you had this lead who knows everything and it completely threw him out of the door, but let him back in just so he could dust himself off and apologize. So you, it's a g good thing you brought up um, Teresa Wright. There we go. I went blank for a second. It's a good <laughs> thing you brought her up because one of my favorite things about this film is how ambiguous the name Mrs. Minifer is. It's not just Greer Garson's character as the strong motherly role who has to hold all of these people together in this tightly knit family, which is ever so expanding. It's also the name of a prize winning flower that's named after her. And this big debate as to why it's named after her, should it even win? Because it's not even, it's basically the mutt of flowers within this competition. It's also based on Teresa Wright's character, the daughter who ends up marrying the son. She's also technically Mrs. Miniver, and without giving anything away, there's a very big reason why it could be named after her at the end of the film. There are so many different possible meanings for what this film can be that, yes, we have a strong motherly role in the center, but she could only hold so much as the world around her collapses and gets rebuilt. Yeah, um, and, and I thought a great way of sort of showing off the naivety of of going into war was done through uh, the Miniver's two young children. Uh, you know, at the beginning, um, they'll, they'll say they're just very naive about the way they were talking about war after the first. Uh, you know, shells are getting dropped in their area. Um, after it's all over, one of the kids looks up and says, so is the war over now? And you just sort of have to laugh and be like, well, no, of course not. But, you know, that's something that everyone wishes that they could say. And, and But you can't because you know it's not true. So it's nice that they're able to, to put these, I don't want to say stupid questions, but the naive questions to the children because it makes sense that the kids are asking it and it makes you sort of confront the own these questions yourself. Yeah, that's another interesting thing that you, you've brought up a good point, actually, that this film takes a lot of pressing issues head on. What is it like to see the enemy eye to eye in a situation where you could be a caregiver or the person who puts them away? What is it like when somebody you love is directly affected by war, whether they're in the war or not even a part of it at all? There are a lot of different... This is why this is the kind of film that follows this guideline I spoke about earlier, and it does it well because nothing's just happening because they're in the war scenario. It's happening to give different perspectives. I think a movie like Hurt Locker did that extremely well, actually, which we'll get into many episodes from now, where it's plotless. It's we, we start from here, we try to make it to the end. But like that film, Mrs. Miniver takes a touchy subject and looks at it in so many different angles that you don't feel like you're watching a series of vignettes. You feel like you're a part of the greater picture, and you're learning while everyone else is learning. It's a great character study and a great look at war, what war could be like from the eyes of the people back at home. I, I think a, a pretty a pretty good thing to kind of look at, it was very subtle, was um, 
they were talking about Alice in Wonderland, uh, Lewis Carroll's famous novel, sort of at the same time when the air raid bombings were going on. So it was a really good ju- uh, juxtaposition of the the fantasy fairy tale world with what's going on in real life, that sort of escapist mentality. Absolutely. I think there's just so many things that were well pieced together with this film. There's a lot of care that was put into this and not just a whimsical way of looking at what war could be like. I think a lot of this had some really delicate fine tuning with it. And I guess to lead into our next pick, we're going to look at a film that's pretty easily debated over. Is it as great as it is? Or is it just something that looks so beautiful and delicately put together, but actually doesn't have much of a leg to stand on? I think we're going to have an interesting discussion with this one, especially from your end. We have the production masterpiece Gone with the Wind. I don't know why there was a pause there, because I guess you would know what was going to follow up with that. But yes, the highly debated film. Is it as great as, it, as everyone says it is? Let's go right into this. This is produced by David O. Selznick, who is seen as kind of like the production wizard of its time. It's the longest Oscar-winning movie to ever be put out, even longer than some picks we're going to get to later on, like Lawrence of Arabia, standing at pretty much four hours long. It is a look at the South during all of its evolutionary changes through the eyes of Vivian Lee's character, who is smitten and is in love, and she can't see love right before her, this Scarlett O'Hara character who goes from a young, naive, rich girl into somebody who we could hope is matured, but is she really? What did you think of Scarlett O'Hara's slow evolution while the South rapidly changed around her? Because I know you've seen this twice, and you were very hesitant to watch it again. What did you think? Uh, I don't even know. Uh, I, You know, I, I don't even... I'm dreading sort of talking about this, just because I know that I'm going to be on the opposite end of the spectrum of I'm I'm sure a lot of people I know this is a a deeply held movie that a lot of people absolutely cherish and it does very little for me the first time I watched it I absolutely hated it um and this time I the second watch through I liked it quite a bit more but I you know it's one of those things where I ranking it I, I had a hard time deciding do the film's near perfect technical abilities as far as you know the cinematography the the editing at times uh the direction things like that does that outweigh all the things that i despise about the movie uh chief among them being Vivian Lee's performance. I do. I will admit that I liked it more that her performance more the second time around. Um, I also feel that four hours, the movie is way too long and has pacing issues. I think, I think that's a bit of a different beast. Normally editing and pacing go side by side, but in this case, uh, I don't think so. I think the editing is fine, but the pacing is bad. I don't know if that really makes a lot of sense. Uh, does that make sense to you? It makes sense because I've seen that kind of uh, that kind of self battle a film can have with its editing and its pacing. I've seen that before, so it makes sense to me. But 
Oddly enough, one of the things I might disagree with you on this podcast is I thought the pacing was actually pretty lightning quick. I don't know. I thought I've I've seen a lot of really long movies, and it, out of the ones that I around four hours or longer, it didn't feel as treacherous as some of those other films were. And this is uh, this is like we're talking a movie here that's got racial issues. It's got some really silly dialogue at times. It's got a lot of stupidly theatrical moments and i don't know i had no problems with the pacing at all despite the fact that a lot of it is too in your face i would say okay well uh i I agree as far as the racist thing i i feel like it takes a bit of a revisionist history about like you know the happy housekeeper happy slave sort of thing which really bugs me because obviously that's not true i'm sure there were maybe some slaves that had decent enough owners where you know they didn't come their lives didn't completely suck but at the same time they were still slaves and they they sort of make this movie seem like everyone is very happy to be working there they never i don't think they do they mention slavery they might i think they mentioned slavery uh once or twice but it's never in the parlance of the actual help um and I think I think maybe my other biggest issue with it is the fact is there's no B plot. Uh, I I know it's from the perspective of Scarlet, but literally no one else has anything else going on other than I know I've said this earlier about um, how green was how green was my valley, but everyone is just there to sort of further Scarlet's plot. No one has their own things going on. Not even um, Rhett Butler, uh, Clark Gable's character. When, like, we don't know anything about him when he's not in the scene. There's nothing about him that's sort of furthering his own plot. He's just sort of there to be the foil for Scarlett O'Hara. Um, is that something that you that you, you noticed? If, if you did, did it bug you? Or, or am I sort of being over, overly reactionary about it? No, no, no. Actually, now that you mention it, I think I subconsciously noticed it before. And I'll, I'll get into why in a second. But now that you fully mentioned it, I'm replaying a lot of it in my head, and you're right. Like, this movie was billed as this big pairing of Vivian Lee and Clark Gable, but truth be told, even though it's four hours long, you don't see Clark Gable that often in a, like, yeah, you see him for maybe two hours, but keep in mind that's a four-hour film. Most of the movies about Scarlett O'Hara being in love with this guy named Ashley. Oh, Ashley this and Ashley that. <laughs> but, um, it, it, like, that... If you don't know anything about Gone with the Wind, it's one of those movies where you want to see it, and it's, oh, I, I, let me guess what it's about. It's this couple that's in love, and they go, they go through pressing times. No, most of the movies about her complaining about this guy named Ashley not noticing her, through marriage, through the South dissolving and burning down, everything. I'll get into why I subconsciously thought what you've just explained right now. Um, I think we all kind of know the ending, if not spoilers for the next minute or so. When Clark Cable says, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, and he leaves, that should have been the ending with Scarlet weeping, and that would have been great. But the fact that it focuses on her saying that she's going to try and still win his heart, I could not give less of a damn about this. No pun intended. The end really pissed me off because, you know, that ending where, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. uh, That's a really powerful moment. And Clark gives a great performance in that scene. 
And like your heart just absolutely drops to the floor when you hear that and the realization of everything that's going on. And then they they have that little amendment where it's not even a minute long. It's probably 30 seconds longer. And it just takes all the wind out of the sails. You're just like, well, I'm back to not caring. (laughs) I think if they had her having that speech beforehand, like maybe she was saying, you know what? I finally love him. I love him. And I, as much as I love the South, we're going to age together and all of that. And then he gave his line and just darted out of the door. And that was the ending. I think the that point would have still been given and it would have been a more powerful combination of all the elements that were happening. Because at this point, even though we don't know much about Clark Gable's character and where he comes from, except for the fact that he's this rich playboy who gets all the dames, she, you know, we still sympathize with him so greatly because we're just so sick of Ashley getting so much recognition. However, I think with that in mind, the movie still is so well designed and so well shot that this annoying journey into like the hunt for Ashley's love is at least enjoyable through an artistic sense. I mean, what did you think about the shots and the production? That's the problem because like the, the two sides of my brain, the, the the guy that appreciates a well-made film and a guy that watches movies to be entertained, they're absolutely fighting with each other. Um, and, and, you know, as I was saying, the technical side of things is just amazing. You know, we're talking about the shots now, but you have to give an absolute, you know, Credit where credit is due as far as the costumes in the sets are so on point and beautifully crafted that you, you really do feel like you're there and, and they do a great job with aging them. You know, the, the stuff that was trendy at the beginning, they, they dirty it up, yet they still, these characters still wear them with pride, even though they're in the middle of a war and they do a great job of showcasing that where, you know, their, their costumes may be ripping and fraying, but they're their dignity is still there sort of thing, which I really like. But as far as the cinematography goes, it's stunning. You know, the everyone talks about the Atlanta burning sequence, and that still is a real marvel of, uh, of, of early modern cinema to be able to do such a thing where, you know, the screen is just blazing red, and that's a real fire, and the actors are really running by these burning buildings, uh, and so you, you feel the palpitations in your heart. But I think uh, the real standout shot that will probably, in my mind, is one of the single greatest shots ever, you know. Um, Scarlet is looking for the doctor because her sister-in-law is about to give birth and she's having complications. So she runs into this medical hospital and the doctor kind of shoves her off and says, look, I've got hundreds upon hundreds of guys here that need, that are actually dying, not a woman who may or may not die giving birth sort of thing. And Scarlet dejected walks out into the open and you know there's a whole bunch of cots and barracks and all these dying men and she walks out into the street and it's a train yard and the camera's on a crane and the crane lifts up slowly and zooms out and you realize that the body's lined out on the ground in very even grave-like fashion there are hundreds of these guys in rows upon rows and it's just such a 
oh my gosh sort of shot where it really hits you in the gut just seeing the magnitude of of a war field in your own backyard and the way it was done is just absolutely breathtaking and the fact that this is this is way before cgi this is 1939 so all these people lying down in perfect rows they were all really there they were all actors extras whatever they were in their period costumes they were there lying still and that was an incredible shot absolutely and this is why Theoretically, I think the, the film is okay, but in my heart and my emotions, I love this movie. I really do. And you'll see a few films like this in the podcast as we go on to these Oscar picks, but this is one of the few films where, as a, as a cinephile, I adore this film, but when I sit down and I critique it, it's got so many problems that I can't give it a really high rating, but... There's just so much about this movie that took my breath away. There was that shot, even the beginning where you see like the plowing and you see, I, I can't even imagine what it was like back in the, the late 30s seeing that. For me in 2015, it's my second or third time watching this in full, it still kicks me right in the face to see something that preciously stunning. I can't even go into that. And that's like one of the very first shots. You don't even see people yet. And then you see all of the, the slow zooms into all of these characters while they're out in the fields. You see the winding up the staircase, which for the late 30s, how in God's name did he do any of this? If you look at any of the other films we have looked at, even the great ones, even the other David Oselzik film, even though that's the one that comes closest to this film in terms of its art style, it's still so far ahead. It's it's definitely what I would consider a guilty pleasure for me because there are things that stand out, you know, mainly the art aspect, even Hattie McDaniel, which actually was the first, first African American to win an Oscar for her performance as the nanny. So despite the whole racial issues and stuff, at least there was a big push in that. Um, yeah, there's a lot of wrong with it, but I still love the movie. Yeah. I guess the, the irony of, of of Hattie McDaniel winning was that she wasn't even allowed to be at the Oscar ceremony or the but premiere is, of the movie, which is a sad, unfortunate plight on American history with their with their deal with racism, which which is an absolute shame. Um, I guess moving on because you know we can only say so much without me going off on a complete tangent, you know, as I already I'm sure I already did. Um, the last one that we're going to sort of focus on in this episode is the best years of our lives, which came out in 1946. And it's about, um, three Americans coming back from world war two to a small town and sort of dealing with the aftermath of the war, you know, dealing with the psychological and physical issues that come with returning from war and also readjusting to life, especially life where now they're coming home to women in the workplace. And, you know, you all had all these young guys that when you left weren't old enough to fight, but now have all the other jobs as well. So it's sort of fighting with the the mentality of how do you readjust into society it's almost like coming out of prison the only difference is uh everyone thinks that you're a hero yeah absolutely and this is a three hour long war film that 
isn't it epic because it's out on the fields and you see bodies blasting and and gunshots blazing. It's an epic because you feel that impact of when the soldiers arrive home in three different settings with three different generational gaps. You have a father, you have you have somebody who's who's in love, you have somebody who's trying to reach for a younger generation, and they get back and they feel this titanic this titanic emphasis on how left out of the world they are, despite the fact that they just came back from trying to save it. Yeah, it, this is also directed by William Wyler, who did, um, uh, which one was it? Miss Miniver? Yes. Okay, yeah. So they're they're sort of similar in, in that sense of the, you know, Miss Miniver is beginning of war, best years is after the war, but it's still that sort of dealing with the psychological impact of what war means to, on a more of an individual level than what it meant to a country as a whole. I thought it was, it was really refreshing seeing the frankness the frankness of the uncertainty of these three men coming back you know um they're these three guys they end up flying in a a a work plane together to come back to the same small town and they get in a cab and you know they're talking about oh where are you gonna do oh where are you gonna do and it's that sort of that that slight edge of not knowing what's happening you know you have one of them who's unsure if his girlfriend will love him you know you have another guy who's isn't has his his kids have grown up and he doesn't know what's going to happen and and that's sort of really refreshing because for the most part a lot of war films really glaze over the fact of these minor details that sort of make up the real life aspect yeah i remember when you finished watching it because I saw it before you. Uh, we went into a bit tangent where we looked at a more recent film that tr- that supposedly touched upon mental psychosis after war, and that was American Sniper, which apparently was very about that. But as you said, it glazed over it so much that you know, just showing him wanting to beat up a dog because it's barking at a party because he's got post-traumatic stress disorder, it doesn't cut it. Whereas this film which I think you appreciated more than I did, because I still think it was really good. It's a three-hour analysis into three different minds and how they were still deeply rooted in war, but they branched off a little bit with how they were affected. And even then, even though I felt the film was overlong, I think somebody like you who loved it from start to finish, you probably felt like they could have, not in a bad sense, they could have done even more because they were so into the minds of these characters that they could have gone even further and analyzed even more of how their lives were affected because it did such a great job doing what it already did. I'm like, would I be right in saying that? Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. I, I know you felt that the film faltered a bit in the middle where it lost a bit of steam. I, I didn't really feel that. I thought the pacing was really solid and it kind of kept me very engaged through the whole way. And I was very invested into what these three men were going through. I think the real MVP of the movie is Frederick March, who plays the, the oldest of the three. And I thought that... Yeah, I, I find a lot of the time with... with early cinema the the leads are more there to be movie stars and all the dirty work is done by the supporting cast uh they're more character actors but i thought frederick march put in a real 
ugly performance. And I mean that as a compliment, you know, you, you sort of see him very raw and dealing with a lot of uncertainties about what it means to be a man. And you see him sitting in bed with no shirt on and he has a gut and his hair is all over the place and he needs to shave and he probably doesn't have very much makeup on if any and it's just sort of that performance where you really get dialed into knowing who this character is because for once you actually see them in their realness in their in in their real nakedness of their soul i've got to agree with that and i think that was a great choice by the director and everybody involved because that it wasn't just like that was the characteristic of this character um we see this as well with the choice for one of the younger soldiers played by harold russell which if you don't recognize that name that's because he's not done much in fact he's not even an actor at all they got an actual veteran who lost both of his hands to play exactly that in this film so a lot of that is autobiographical emotionally for this actor and while you and i both agree that he wasn't the strongest performer in this film the fact that they made these kinds of kinds of decisions and in times when that decision worked his big climactic moment near the end where he looks at himself with such tragedy and he says what can i do i i can't do much you're gonna have to support me for the rest of my life you know moments of like that win they win so heavily because they're so real. And again, this is us looking back. I can't even imagine, you know, fil- film goers back then seeing something like this and going, okay, I've never seen that before. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you on that facet. I think as far as, you know, his acting abilities weren't, weren't great. They were fine. Um, but it was more the storyline where, you know, the other two guys were sort of dealing with, a bit of the mental aspect of coming back from war and you have this guy who's dealing with a much more physical thing where we know that there were many many wounded soldiers coming back in, in very different way you know not having your hands is is a very real way to do it because you know if you lost a leg you can you know sort of have um an artificial limb and your pants cover up and you don't see it and it doesn't really affect you that much other than, you know, maybe uh, your one working leg kind of gets sore. But like this, not having hands, he had claws for hands. And it's, you watch him and it's sort of mesmerizing watching all the things that he can do, you know? He can pour himself a beer, he can smoke a cigarette, he can do everything he wants. But then when that final, you know, emotional breakdown comes down when he the whole time he's wanting his family to treat him like normal and treat everything you know pretend i'm normal pretend i have my hands but he's he's subtly pushing them away by telling them that they'll never understand him and and you know he's he's making it seem like it's something else when reality he's just scared about the fact that he now is reverting to almost like childlike where his girlfriend the woman he wants to marry has to essentially be his mother for the rest of his life that you know he takes off his hands his claws and suddenly he he says things like if my bedroom door were to blow shut during the night i would be stuck in my bedroom until someone opened it up i could starve to death yeah, and we see a lot of hard-hitting stuff like that with all three of the soldiers, actually. 
or veterans rather. And, you know, you see it from the role of her father who's lost everything. You see it from, you know, again, this character who feels like he's pushing everybody away and he's got to relearn how to do everything, you know. Um, other characters you see, like what it means to feel loved or to even love others. And there are just so many things that we take for granted now, you know, what we can do physically, what we can feel emotionally, how we are linked to other people. And it's just a bit of an ironic name, the best years of our lives, because for the duration of this film, it's the struggle that they had. So what were the best years? Was it the war or was it these years catching up with everybody? No, the best years are to come and we haven't seen them yet. We've seen everything that will lead to the best years. And that's why it's a pretty powerful film because we see just a turnaround point where everything's going to be okay. It just took three hours to get there. And it's a great study on that, actually. And it's still well, well acclaimed now. I mean, Ebert put it on his all-time greats list. And it's, it's definitely one of the more powerful films we've had to watch for this podcast. Yeah, and I think one one person we didn't mention was Dana Andrews, who plays the the other soldier coming back, the sort of middle one. Uh, his is a is a pretty unique story because when he went to war, you have to imagine that he was probably just out of his teen years, and you find out that he was a, a soda jerk, you know, making milkshakes and ice cream sundays at a at a drugstore. Um, and then when he comes back, he tries to get some job interviews and they're like, okay, well, what was your, uh, skill set? He's like, well, I, uh, I was a soda jerk before. Okay. Well, what did you do in the war? I dropped bombs. Well, what did you command people? Nope. I just dropped bombs. Okay. Well, did you have any tough, any tough situations? Nope. I just dropped bombs. And you know, this is a guy who gave up, I don't know, five, 10 years of his life to serve his country, he comes back and he has no transferable skills at all what to speak of. And it's sort of that in limbo thing where everyone wants to pretend to be really patriotic, but, you know, to what extent are they able to fake their patriotism sort of thing? Yeah, and we see that with a lot of films even now. So it was pretty well ahead of its time even then. Uh, You know, we have a lot of documentaries that have touched upon this. We have um, a lot of war dramas that, that have touched upon this. A lot of people will be quick to say, yes, let, let's fight the war and let's win the war. But then when you have stuff like this, people are kind of quick to jump out of the way because then they have to accept responsibility. And it's it's still a sad statistic that a lot of veterans now are, are homeless or psychologically unstable and they don't have the help that, that they're deserving of because, well, even in All Quiet on the Western Front, that climactic ending where you know one of the soldiers visits a school and tells everybody this isn't what you think it is this is a nightmare you never get out of this it's not just psychologically it's because you're led into the army thinking i've i've got all of this backup i've got all of this comfort they will guide me everywhere and every which way but as soon as the war ends you've got nothing and nobody will pick you up because you're you're lacking all of these skills and the Best Years of Our Lives is such an early film to take these issues head on outside of, you know, All Quiet on the Western Front. But the whole movie does this for The Best Years of Our Lives. And that's why it's a pretty damn important film. Yeah. And Teresa Wright is in this as well, uh, who I thought was was fantastic as Dana Andrews, 
sort of uh, third member in a love triangle that he has with his actual wife and then um, Teresa Wright playing Frederick March's daughter. Um, so I think there she's another one that, that I want to kind of give a nice shout out to. Uh, but that is our films, 10 through six, the first five in our countdown. And uh, we think that this is sort of a, a good time to... Uh, to bid adieu and uh we're gonna have part two that's gonna come out next week where we're going to um count down the remaining ones and give out our awards uh so first off i'd like to give a very big thank you to our, our music this week is from the Ooh baby gimme mores they're a toronto area uh afro punk band and uh if you are going to Riot Fest. You can see them there. They had an opening slot at Oceaga, so they're definitely making their names, and they're really great guys. So please uh, go to our show notes and buy all of their music and uh, and go and check them out if you can. Um, Andreas, where can all of our listeners find you? You can find me on Twitter at Andreas Babs. And you can find me, hopefully, leaving my rants about Gone with the Wind off my Twitter account at dgapa and make sure you follow along on the show at contrazoom pod and uh and check out everything else on live in limbo and, and look for the show notes on there where i'll have our rankings and things like that so far so thank you very much for listening and see you next time 